0: Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox. And sadly, not joining me today is Dario Linares, my cinematologist co-pilot. Yes, it's just me for this season. And it's weird, I have to say, it is weird to be piloting this plane solo. But I'm looking forward to it and it's really nice to be back and I am Glad that you're here uh, with me and with us as we embark on a new season. Dario, if you're listening, I hope that you like the show and I can't wait for you to be back on the airwaves with me at some point in the near future and that you enjoy your break. You've definitely earned it. So there was no little sort of prologue trailer in the opening music today because I'm on my own, so I thought I would just spend a little bit of time getting you up to speed and letting you know what we're in for in this episode. Before we get there, a little note um, from my life, which is that I was really looking forward to this week and this new season and sort of starting off with a lot of really upbeat kind of film-watching thoughts and kind of update of where I'm at and what I've been doing film-wise. And then at the weekend... I took our dog Bailey to the vets after he had a really really bad week and made the decision to say goodbye to Bailey and that happened on Tuesday the 6th that happened on Tuesday the 6th it's now Thursday the 8th which is the day of release of this episode so it's only been a couple of days since we took Bailey to the vet and say goodbye to him and yeah I'm not in a great place. It's been a really strange week, an incredibly sad week, uh, but also a really beautiful week. And yeah, people's kindness and sharing their memories of Bailey and their photos of Bailey and their love of Bailey has been really, really beautiful. He was an old dog. He was 15 plus when, when we say goodbye and he had a great life and we had a great life with him and if you're a patreon subscriber uh, thank you first of all and yeah just to let you know that i will be writing a little sort of memorial in the coming newsletter which will be out on the 1st of march about bailey and yeah his escapades and and our life with him so look forward to that hopefully there'll be stuff in there that you'll enjoy even if you're not a dog person but that's where i'm at that's what i've been sort of grappling with this week so it's actually really nice to be recording this introduction ahead of the new season's first release and yeah I'm really excited about about the whole season in terms of what 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 lies ahead in terms of guests and sort of different focus of films. Um, but it feels really, really nice to be starting off with with this episode. So my guest today is Jeannie Finlay and she's talking about her new film. Your Fat Friend, which is released in cinemas on the 9th of February. So tomorrow, as per the day of release of this episode, and well worth getting out for if you can to a screen near you. Not only is it a you know wonderfully cinematic film as, as Genie's films are, it's also, I imagine, and uh, I didn't experience it this way, but I imagine it's a really, a really wonderful film to experience communally with an audience um, for reasons that might become clear through our conversation, which we'll get to shortly. I've known Jeannie a long time. We, I came across her before she made Sound It Out. Uh, we were both writing for Directors' Notes, so thank you, Marbell. Hopefully, you're listening, and yeah, thank you for thank you for inviting me to write for your amazing site. Um, and Jeannie was also writing for the site um, way back when, and I sort of yeah learned about her through that and followed her as she was crowdfunding for Sound It Out. Her film about the last record shop in Teesside um, in Stockton, which is where she grew up. And uh, the shop, Sound It Out, was run by her friend Tom. And I remember uh, getting some really lovely perks from that crowd fund. I've still got some stickers somewhere. I used them very sparingly, but they do get used. And uh, also a really lovely sort of DVD and seven-inch release um, of that film, uh, which was, yeah, which is very special. And which I dug out when I wrote my book. Uh, On music films because I cover three of Jeannie's films in that book, Uh, Sound It Out, um, Orion, The Man Who Would Be King and The Great Hip Hop Hoax. So she's one of the most prominent filmmakers in the book uh, and certainly one of the most prominent and well-respected filmmakers that we have uh, currently and uh, she's always an absolute pleasure to talk to and this was a really really beautiful conversation I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeannie about her new film keen-eared listeners will remember that Jeannie was on the podcast back in 2019 or early 2020 because um, she was at Filmstock the film festival I ran in Luton uh, so it was really nice to catch up with her about this new work and as the conversation hopefully sort of relays I feel like there's kind of a very close relationship in many ways to her last film Seahorse uh, which is one of the films we covered on on the episode that Jeannie popped up on before. So I think I'm just going to leave it there and let the conversation speak for itself. I had a really great time. Thanks, Jeannie, for your time and your candor and your kind of insightfulness as ever. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And you listeners, welcome back to the new season. Thanks for thanks for coming back. And I hope that you like what's in store this season and this conversation. So this is me with the director of Your Fat Friend, Jeannie Finley. <laughs>
1: Whoa. Shh. Just say fat. Not curvy or chubby or chunky or fluffy or mortal love or oh, a big, big guy, guy big or Husky or obese inside. or overweight. Just say fat. The very first piece was called A Request from Your Fat Friend, and like 30,000 people read it in about a week. And I was like, whoa, okay. My aim is to provoke people to question ideas that we've held on to for so long. The strongest bonding amongst women happens when people are talking about how much they hate their bodies. Oh, God. I had a woman take a melon out of my cart, and she went, it's got too much sugar for you. It's a melon. The wellness industry is worth $4.5 trillion. This is like big tobacco levels of just lying to people. It's like they're trying to pull some Jedi mind trick. It's not a diet. (laughs) At the tender age of 11, I had already attended kids' fat day camps. It was my responsibility. Her size was my responsibility. You know, I was always like my father, worried about losing control. Having cameras going sort of makes things bubble up. It is a real paradigm shift to look at someone my size and rather than thinking, boy, I wish that person would put in some effort, thinking, that person may have put in a great deal of effort. And that might have been what got them here. As a fat person, you figure out how to disappear yourself. That's the only way I have existed in the world. I just sent in the last chapter of the book. Oh my god! I took more from how you looked at yourself than how you looked at me. But I think that's how it gets passed along. Hi, everybody. Welcome to maintenance phase. You will learn, get angry, and have a good time.
0: (laughs) Hello, Jeannie. Thanks for coming on.
2: Oh, hello. Uh, Neil, I'm really happy to be back on the Cinematologists.
0: It's been a couple of years, has not it? We, you you were you were live in person for Filmstock, which was really nice um, with Seahorse, uh, and now you're back with your new film, Your Fat Friend.
2: Yeah, it's great to um, pop up every couple of years or so, and new films out, and just just talk about it. It's interesting. There's all these the. You are one of a regular number of people that I see with every film, and it's really nice. It sort of <laughs> reminds me that you know, everyone is still in this industry, and yeah, the little stepping stones on uh, markers of time, I guess.
0: Yeah, nice little, nice little milestones um, mm. in the in the kind of the old-fashioned sense. Yeah, um, I must have, yeah, and it, it, it is really lovely to talk to you again. I mean, it's always lovely to talk to you, but, but with a film that feels really connected to seahorse in particular um in terms of filmmaking approach and the kinds of things you seem interested in um so i was hoping that maybe we could talk a little bit about that you know that relationship because it feels like you're expanding as a filmmaker and this is a really beautiful and fascinating film that you've made um and I can see sort of some links to all of your work, but certainly, um, yeah, it feels like this is a new phase for you. Does it feel like a a new phase sort of artistically and in terms of the kinds of stories you want to tell
2: uh thank you um i th- I mean maybe um I'm not sure whether it's a new phase, but I think I'm definitely. Um it's weird cuz the films take so long to make like this one took 6 years mm. and was bookended by you know I started this film and then I made Seahorse and Game of Thrones the last watch and then I came back to this film so all of those films are made within the same period when I'm thinking about consent access to storytelling how one person's story and the microcosmic can tell a much bigger story but I think that those are things I've developed in all of my films really I think the more particular particular you are the bigger story you can tell so Sand It Out you know is about a tiny record shop in the small town where I grew up and it's concentrating on small stories so I think that that desire to tell small stories or people away from the spotlight has always been there but it's most explicit in seahorse and your fat friend
0: yeah and one of the things i thought about in terms of how there's a kind of progression through is this idea that your films are about people who are looked at but not seen and i you know like that
2: oh i like i like that um
0: because i think that you know you think i'm thinking of orion i'm thinking of um syllable and brains you know they're in they're in a space of being looked at in the same way that Freddie was um for that period um and it is just as you know as, as a kind of as a human being kind of going through that process that they went through and then obviously aubrey's being looked at um and the film is about looking in many ways so i thought that was a really interesting thing in terms of like you say giving space to people to share in that vulnerability of actually, who are they behind what we actually just look at?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always been... I, I'm going to borrow that phrase of um, <laughs> looked at but not necessarily seen. I mean, I I sort of thought about it as... I'm interested in masks, both yes. sort of um, actual, as in Orion, the man who would be king, you know, a singer that wore a mask and that enabled... People to believe that Elvis had come back from the grave because the mask created a fantasy, but with Aubrey, she was, you know, she's a writer who reached an enormous audience, but she did a lot of that at the beginning of her career as an anonymous writer. Hmm. So she was able to be, she could exist in the in the imaginations of whoever was reading her writing. I think that Your Fat Friend is a film about the act of becoming visible. At the beginning of the film, Aubrey's anonymous. She then, you know, steps into her real name, Aubrey Gordon, which is actually a pen name. And she becomes a face on the back of a book. Um, And, you know, around the same time, she's also a podcast host. So she's a, a voice divorced on the internet. Um, it's only at the end of the film when we see her stepping out in front of a real life audience for the first time that she fully embodies Aubrey Gordon being there. And mm-hmm. it's at that point that her family, who at the beginning of the film were not unable to say the word fat, fully see her. So in the filming approach I took, Aubrey appears and disappears a lot um in the way, in the way that I film her a lot a lot of the I say a lot almost every shot in the film is done in camera. you know, I'm swinging a camera with a light attached to it, so it's not me digitally making Aubrey appear and disappear. she is literally held by the light, and then she is no more, you know, and I sort of fitted cameras to umbrellas and we filmed her in a landscape that allowed her body to appear and then disappear. So these are all thematic stuff that I thought deeply about that the audience doesn't necessarily need to engage with intellectually, but hopefully they feel it on an emotional level.
0: Yeah, and I think similar to Seahorse, it's, it's, it's beautifully woven into the fabric of the film, you know, that, that idea of embodiment, you know, what it means to embody a body that society considers, considers other, you know, um, and how the filmmaking sort of, in both cases, you know, through water and, and sort of elemental sort of approach kind of gives sort of a layer of security to the, to the subjects in terms of, yeah, holding the space for them to, to share that embodiment, which is obviously a very, very difficult and vulnerable thing for them to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, Aubrey and Freddie McConnell both showed enormous um, trust in me, but that was also bolstered by the approach that we took to consent in the filmmaking. I employ non-binary consent in my films, which means just because you sign up to do a film six years ago doesn't mean to say that that's carte blanche. You know, it means that I'm constantly renegotiating consent as a live conversation Throughout what we do It means I'm still the director And I get to choose To make the film in whatever way I want But it just means that I'm dealing with people On a more human one-to-one level Rather than subject and director Mm. You know, I'm thinking about the The documentary film subject Deals with this very, very thing um, About the relationship of the people That take part in films To the films that are made Mm. So... That's very dear to my heart. But yeah, with the with um Aubrey's the first person I've ever filmed who said I could put the camera anywhere. There was no barrier to to where I was allowed to film. She just sort of said, Listen, I look fat wherever you film me. And once you sort of decouple yourself from the idea that fat is a negative word, if you see it just as a descriptive word like blonde or tall, then the camera can sort of go anywhere and in return I wanted to film her with a tender gaze holding her body magnificently on screen and um yeah showing all of her in a way that felt glorious and took up space
0: Mm. lovely yeah really nice and interesting as well in terms of what you are sort of talking about there, about the process of consent and trust, you know, that it's it's so kind of, um, what's the word? Encouraging sounds a bit tried. I don't really mean that, but it, it, yeah, well, it's exciting really to see Aubrey given space to, to film herself and to become part of the filmmaking process and to be engaged in the actual making of it, you know, um, and she's so good at it because she's such a naturally creative and thoughtful person and that that struck struck me as a kind of as a really as a kind of really nice gesture I don't know I don't, nice, nice is a horrible word um as a really sort of empathetic gesture you know to say that you trust her not to just be a subject but to to bring you know to bring material f- off from from herself to it rather than just the stuff that you're capturing
2: yeah well, I mean partly partly that's pragmatic, but partly it was something that we started at Seahorse. Um yeah. uh, Freddie was quite shy, um, and reserved, which kind of, kind of sounds counterintuitive, but um it also it's just like I can't be there twenty four seven. So there's stuff some stuff that's happening in the moment. And your Fat Friend in particular is a film about the present tense. What does it what does it mean? you know, if you've had an infuriating dinner with your family, if Aubrey uh, knows it's important to capture that in the present tense because I'm meeting with her once a week and sort of, I'm really clear about what we need for the film. Mm -hmm. Um, She has the presence of mind to switch the camera on and it becomes a a sort of collaborative process like that. And partly some of that was um, pragmatic because of the pandemic. I left a camera out in the States in February 2020 and I was supposed to return March 2020 and when it became clear that, uh, yeah, this lockdown was going to go on for longer than like three weeks, I showed Aubrey how to use the one of the cameras I'd left behind over Zoom and it meant that when she's having a barbecue with her family or when she's phoning her friends to tell them that Adele responded to her on Instagram. She knows to set the camera up in the corner and to let it, and to let it just film.
0: Mm. Yeah, fabulous. Um, and it's interesting you say there about the, uh, it's a film in the present tense, because one of the things that really struck me about the film as it was kind of unfolding is like, this is one of the best films I've seen about the internet as a, as a space. And it's such a kind of thoughtful essay in many ways in terms of like how the internet has been used over the past sort of twenty years really. And you know, that the process through blogging, through social media, through podcasting, as a space for yeah, this kind of present tense connectivity, which has just was, was has, has been un it's been it's unheralded you know, in terms of access to community. Um, and the film beautifully captures the the really complex binary between the hellscape, you know, and what you unleash when you put yourself into the internet space, but also the the power of it as a space for people to connect in terms of community and seeing themselves or feeling themselves heard and seen in a way that, yeah, it kind of just de-isolates them in a kind of instant. Um how in terms of the other things that the film is about, you know, was that something that you were always conscious of or did that grow and, and were there other things where you're like, Oh, actually this is a this is a chance for me to talk about these things, um, as and using Aubrey as this really kind of powerful beacon at the at the heart of it?
2: Um, I think I was always governed by Aubrey's story you know I spent um, I knew that I wanted to make a film about fatness initially I thought I wanted to make a film about dieting Um, and then I you know when I started doing research I was like no 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 it's definitely fat I want to make a film about and I was seeing fat seeping into pop culture into Instagram in a way that I'd only ever seen it in fat positive or political spaces and it felt like there was a shift because it was moving over to pop culture. Mm. Um, and I did quite a lot of research before I met Aubrey, but I read the first piece that she wrote and put out onto the internet on uh, Medium, which is a free blogging site. There was 30,000 people read her uh, blog piece in the first week and I was one of them. So as soon as I... if If the story is about Aubrey's progression as a writer in the world or and also I mean the thing that sort of sealed the deal for me about Aubrey's the film was I met her and I just thought here is here is an anonymous writer with a brilliant and engaging voice that's very different to her sort of self-described muppety exterior she's quite an extrovert funny extrovert and then when she I got her to read out the piece that I sort of fell in love with, um, a letter from your fat friend, what I ask when we talk about bodies. When I got her to read that out, she had this sort of smaller, quieter, more gentle voice. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is like an interior voice coming out. And then when I met her family And they weren't even able to name the subject matter of what she was writing about, about what it means to live in a fat body and how she navigates the world and how it's a different experience. I felt that the the gap in between those things was really interesting because Aubrey wanted to change the world, but the conversations that she needed to have with her family were really different. So... I was always thinking about that, about mapping that distance between Aubrey and her parents. Mm. And then the internet has to be a thread in there because it was the source of her being able to talk about it. Sorry, I'll start again. The internet enabled Aubrey a voice. You know, she could publish her, her writing and be very honest about and vulnerable about that. But with that vulnerability comes the fear of doxing, uh, come death threats, and come just really terrible stuff if you write about um, bodies on the internet. Um, And the way I dealt with that in the filmmaking was that we projected, I projected um, some of the hate speak that Aubrey encountered directly onto the walls of her house. Mm. The reason why I did that was sort of twofold. One is, no one wants to look at a screen, <laughs> an internet screen in a film. It's you know, making the internet come to life in a film is is really terrible. but I was I sort of was thinking about the way that if you get if you get sent terrible stuff, it's not just the internet as in oh, it doesn't matter, it's just the internet. It is real The internet is real life It sits on the phone That sits on your hat That is in your hand As you sit on your sofa In your home It seeps into the walls Mm. So I projected it um, Onto the walls of Aubrey's house And we did a bit of comping Like I built a wall back in Nottingham I matched her Pantone matched her wall You know her Paint colour and comp stuff in but I want it to, it to feel like yeah, it's it changes the world. The internet has changed our world forever.
0: yeah, unquestionably um, in so many different ways, um, which the film sort of captures captures really well um, and it's essentially sort of talk there about that the impact of that and just just the impact of of what Aubrey's journey sort of brought her, you know, requires such great vulnerability which almost requires the the slower process you know i think you, there are a lot of instances of of docs where you can see that they've recreated stuff or like you know that, that you would have like you said the stuff that you would have missed as a filmmaker would have they would have been like oh let's just do that when we meet or they would have kind of they wanted to get something out and capture a kind of zeitgeist so and that, that always feels, often not always, but often feels like there's a kind of tension in the film in terms of not letting it, not letting it be made at the pace that the person who's doing the vulnerable opening up needs it to be needs it to be done to be done at. So I know, that obviously, doc funding is is a precarious thing anyway. But you know, I imagine that as it's taken so long that you went into this knowing that this was going to take as long as it was going to take because you were asking something so so profound of someone else over a long period of time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, you know, I sought out funding that I knew would allow me to keep the promises that I made to Aubrey. So working with BFI society and Field Division, they're both institutions or, you know, foundations or organisations that trust the filmmakers to make the work. This isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not listening to, uh, you know, like a technology company that is trying to keep subscribers happy, or a streamer, mm. uh, and so that allows smaller, more intimate stories to be told. Um, and I'm just not sure it's the sort of film. I mean, observational films are, are literally not being commissioned by streamers. If you look at, um, if you look at the output of streamers, I mean. If that's, if that's what you're into, then that's absolutely brilliant. But the, they're mainly retrospective storytelling. They're stories where everyone who gets involved knows exactly what they're going to get because the ending's already happened. Mm. And then often the filmmaking is done once a script has been written and um, a three-act structure and all the turns and the reveals have been set in place. And then the filmmaking is the last bit. Um, And with this, I took the risk. The risk is all on me. Like, I'm not sure. I didn't know when I first first started filming Aubrey as an anonymous blogger in Portland, Oregon, that she was going to find an audience of 60 million um, for her podcast. Mm -hmm. That I had no way of knowing that. I, I trusted my instincts that I thought she was a brilliant and fascinating woman and that I was interested in hearing what she had to say, mm. but I had no idea that she would reach that audience. And now, we're distributing the film. We're definitely experiencing what it means to take a film on the road with someone who has, who is so beloved.
0: Yeah, that's that must be really, yeah, must be really rewarding in terms of the just, yeah, the, the the time investment and, like you say, that kind of instinct, that kind of well, well earned instinct of of doing this for so long um and understanding what what stories what story is really and where a story is um and it's interesting well
2: i was just gonna say you know i think we owe it i want there to be a diversity of stories being told and um if i'm able to raise money so i can make films in that way then that's that's great you know Funding for feature documentaries has never been more precarious. Um, but, you know, we find... I also think like documentary makers can be the most tenacious people I've ever met. We just have to constantly adapt and shift and do things in different ways. And I cast my net internationally when I'm looking for funding because um, because the structures that were in place when we were part of Europe just don't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh. Let's get back to the the good stuff um, before we, because because uh, one of the things that's interesting about all of that is what what happens when you invest in that way because I think one of the it's 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 thrilling to watch Aubrey's career grow you know in terms of not just the the size of, of an audience but just the the impact and her her abilities kind of grow throughout it's 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 such a thrilling watch but there's there's a really there's a really lovely moment where you ask her mama question and it kind of captures her in in a in a moment that you know she had just never it kind of links something up in her in her mind that she'd never she'd never been able to put together or she'd never kind of been able to articulate and it's it's a moment which I think is like you were saying, in the kinds of films that you're talking about, in terms of what passes for the majority of documentaries, kind of getting a release, doesn't happen. Where we, as an audience, are kind of privileged to a moment of filmmaking that is is deeply profound and could and the moment own could only have existed through that film. Like all the conversations that Aubrey had had, all of Aubrey's work, none of it unlocked in her mum that the same that that moment did us, and, and it's just. The engagement that bring, and the particular articulation which brings it out, and it's such a, it kind of, it's one of those things that reroots you in the film as a as a as something that's happening in the present tense in a way that just felt really really moving, um, and yeah, I just I just wanted to sort of draw attention to that because I think it's it's rare to to be reminded in a documentary that you're watching a documentary if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting when I was thinking about that scene when I was filming it it felt very exciting it felt significant and and there are moments when I'm filming where I just feel like oh yeah this is going to be in the film I know this is going to be in the film and when we came to the edit we chose to keep there's a moment where I reframe the camera as as Pam Aubrey's mum is looking for the words to express what she means And I keep the shot long and you see my reframe because I want to remind people this is happening right now and this is what I'm witnessing. And you can see me going, oh, God, get closer. And it's quite interesting. When we showed the film at Edinburgh Film Festival, I had a review where where a young critic got in touch with me to let me know that I really should have cut around that moment and to uh to have delivered a much more professional looking film <laughs> um and it's it's interesting i don't i think that some people um i do wonder if some critics are unable to read a documentary, and I don't mean oh I'm putting something here um that's hard to fathom. It's just the idea that things look a certain way because of a choice I made because hopefully that reminds the audience this is happening in real time. Look at me trying to panic <laughs> to get the shot. There's something that happens with them um, in Seahorse. I mean, the birth is like that, but mm. there's also this silly bit in Seahorse. We used to call it Pooh Gate where someone walks poo through the house and we I feel I'm there filming it and I'm sort of clutching the camera to myself and managing to film what's going on. Um and like opening the door a little bit. But you feel very much like, oh yeah, this is happening right now in real time.
0: Anyway, diversion. Yeah. No, no, it's <laughs> lovely. I love I, I love a good poo diversion. Um <laughs> uh no, I I think it's I think there is something there which is yeah, kind of a, a flattening of form. You know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, this idea of the cinematic, you know, and, and your films are, are very cinematic in that way, you know, that I've been trotting out this Kent Jones quote, where he's kind of quoting Wallace Stevens, who was talking about poetry. In poetry, the poem always returns to the poem, the form of the poem. You know, that's that's always the thing that it's about the poems are about poems um and and ken jones argues that that, that's the same in cinema you know that the form of cinema always returns to the cinema you are invited into watching a film you know um and that film language and that understanding of the sort of the filmic context is increasingly rare you know and there's such craft in the film and that moment is a is 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 as much a professional moment of craft as you know the the way you've 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 come to you know two walls and, and and projected text and you know all of the 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 drone footage like everything is 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 craft but it's a kind of understanding of yeah that it, it's about more than information you know it's about more yeah than,
2: absolutely yeah. it's about it's about emotion and it's a document of the relationship that i had with the people that you're seeing and the questions I asked in the moment when it happened. You know, it's a it's a document of not just that moment, but of the four years of relationship before I was in that room and able to ask that question at that moment. Because, you know, if it was day one, it just wouldn't happen. And I wonder whether critics, younger critics who have brought, been brought up on retrospective storytelling that is using the list of cameras that you're allowed to use to make films for the streamers, using the editors that you're only allowed to use for the streamers, using the three-act structure that is suggested by the streamers, mean that that's what they perceive factual entertainment and cinematic documentaries. They see that they're the same thing and anything that, like... Um, de- what's the word? Anything that sort of veers off that set way of doing things is seen as unprofessional because it's it's using the form in a different way yeah Yeah, maybe you know perhaps this is sort of my my theory on it but there's no of course a lot of docs look the same because you're literally given a list of cameras to use my camera is on my camera is on is on the streamer approved list but i want to use it in a different way my um Editor calls my approach sometimes a bit Wobblesworth, um, but what I what I lack in steady shots, I make up for in intimacy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it recalls um, Andrew Cotting's description of his work as shoddy, shoddiest approach. You know, which is not to say, you know, but it is that it is that very thing of like there is an intimacy, there is a directness, you know, there is a a looseness that comes from knowing what you're going after um that i think is is, is is present throughout the work um in terms of doing things a little bit differently it was really encouraging and interesting to see a mental health supervisor listed front and center on the credits um both in terms of like visual sort of yeah sort of poster and postcard images that are kind of around um but also on the credits themselves um which feels like a a significant shift in terms of that role, um and obviously makes sense for the the films that you're making. I wonder if you could just talk about that that work that process and and, and how important it is to to have that in a kind of integral role when making I guess any film, but certainly in films that are as as kind of emotionally complex as, as the ones you've made with Seahorse and now your fat friend.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, imperative for documentary makers to, to guard and safeguard their mental health. And if we were therapists, if we were actual therapists rather than just pseudo therapists, we would have supervision. Because you can't go delving in other people's lives and activate all your own stuff particularly if you're bringing yourself to the film Mm -hmm. without um support so I worked I started working with Rebecca Day from Film in Mind during the making of um Seahorse and uh Game of Thrones The Last Watch it seemed really important and it's worth sort of recognizing the mental health support It means different things for different people. For me, it means being able to sit down once a fortnight and speak to Rebecca, who is a film producer turned psychotherapist. So she knows the particular difficulties and challenges of this work because you put yourself so much in the work. And sometimes that can be, you know, making this film has made me feel this about... You, you know you want to you want to talk about something that the making of the film has brought up for you. Mm. but it also might be having someone to talk to because accessing the finance is really challenging. You know, the the um the pressure on filmmakers to survive as freelancers within um a precarious financial situation is incredibly challenging. Um, but for some people on the team, mental health support might look like, so for editor Alice Powell, she's like, yeah, that's fine. That's great that you have that. I want a chair massage. So she would have a chair massage once a week. Um, And it meant that we could pay for um, a social media manager so that Aubrey doesn't have to look at social media when the film went out. It means that we've got someone who can do that because it's an enormous pressure
1: Mm.
2: on all of us. So um again because I've raised the money independently and I'm the producer on the film alongside Suzanne Alizart it means that that is a budget line that is continued from the moment we start making the film to right into distribution because it doesn't stop just because the film is finished mm. you know there's a whole there's the mental toll of taking stuff out so um, yeah, and I think what Rebecca's doing and is amazing. She's sort of training more uh, mental health supervisors, uh, running support groups for filmmakers, and I very purposefully put her in a high-profile place in the credits and on the poster because um, there's a bit of a... I don't think people want to talk about this stuff because I think they think, oh, my God, they'll think I'm mad if I'm talking about it. But I think quite frankly you would be mad to not seek out mental health supervision in this kind of work so I want to sort of normalize it and just say this is fine this is this is the way that you can help protect yourself
0: yeah yeah because you you are you are engaging in the stories very very personally you know I think I I love the analogy of therapy and supervision you know that it's Mm. it's it's not, and it places it take it places you outside the outside the idea, in the same way it would a therapist that you are an expert, or are you are emotionally in control of everything that happens in front of you, and it reminds everyone that you're a human being who has yeah their own life, you know, emotional issues, baggage, you know, kind of reactions to everything, and I think it's a really powerful way of yeah, kind of. Linking up something which should be should just be the standard, you know, should be a standard practice. And I think not just for not just for films like this, you know, but just for the like you were saying that there, there are making a film, no matter how you try and approach it, more ethically, more fairer. There's a there are significant pressures on filmmaking that are really acute and that need need support you know precarious precarious product pre-production financing but also just the the intensity of a shoot and then the the uncertainty of an edit and a and a distribution it's it's a really yeah, thing.
2: yeah well i mean even just like if your film is a success what's it like to you know i've just done over two weeks of back-to-back double sold out screenings in front of hundreds of people you know and a lot of a lot of people see the film and then want to sort of trauma dump on you Mm. and tell you about it unlocks something that they they've not been able to articulate before so they want to tell you stuff but it's all deeply personal and upsetting not always but you know a lot of it is hearing some pretty upsetting stuff yeah and 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 it's quite hard to hear that repeatedly, so having mental health supervision is like a pressure valve hmm. you know it releases releases something,
0: yeah, and it's sort of a hint there, which is something I did want to ask in terms of, of 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 what what the impact of the film might be for you you know as a as, as the filmmaker um in terms of like the the film tells the story of 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 Aubrey. Gaining a kind of a, a central place in a in a in a very in 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 the growing arc of a conversation around fatness, um, you know. So the film follows as she kind of builds an audience, but also influences and grows a conversation around fatness, which arguably is not there certainly in the same degree at the start of the film. And I just wondered, like, yeah, what. What conversations are you hoping that it it starts in the UK, or you know what what sort of conversations has it kind of started, or have you experienced on the road that are that are kind of significant to the film itself, which obviously is is a big part of you know I think I don't know in terms of like but just a wider kind of cultural mm. relationship with Aubrey that I don't know how UK centric it is. I don't know how I don't know what the u k. relationship with Aubrey is other than individuals who subscribe because because of the you know the just the the knowledge of what she's been doing and uh, and how she's been talking and and kind of changing the conversation around around fatness.
2: I mean, I think it's worth saying that like there's been decades of of writing about fat politics, but I think that Aubrey, in the same way that I saw fatness seeping into pop culture. I think the um maintenance phase, Aubrey's podcast and her books, because they're because they're delivered with such humour, they're fun. Like you, I think someone reviews her show as you learn something, you get angry and you have a good time, which is sort of how I feel about my film. You know, you I hopefully it's all of those things. I know that in the cinemas there's been a lot of laughter and an enormous amount of crying from people which is kind of amazing I'm always after people crying It's, it's a great thing you know crying in the dark surrounded by strangers here for it yeah um I think I mean what I want people to do is to think about think about the way they sit in relation to fatness and that means hopefully, treating the fat people in their lives in more tenderness and in- including the fat on our own bodies. I want people to be more tender to themselves. And I also want to think about the way that bias shapes the, the world that we live in. Um, anti-fat bias is the rivers that we all swim in. It, it surrounds us every every day. People make fat jokes. Films like The Whale, which is a fantasy of a thin, it's a thin man's fantasy about how terrible it would be to be fat. And that film got an Oscar mm-hmm. um, that was seen as an empathetic story. And to my mind, it's a horror show. Um, not because it's about a fat person, but just the limitation on the way that 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 fat person's story was told. Um, I guess I want people to think about the structural ways that are a barrier to fat bodies um, and what it means to live in a fat body now a lot of the a lot of the ways that people come together to discuss their bodies is is like weight watchers and slimming world and what's been so lovely about the cinema tour is it's been we've had audiences of um, not just fat people but a lot of people coming together united with their bodies right now you know, 90% of diets fail or or people gain more weight after they've done them. So what does it mean to just accept your body as it is? Mm. What does that mean for healthcare providers to treat people with the illness they came in from rather than telling people to go away and lose weight and then they'll be treated? You know, there's so many reports of fat people having cancer missed because they've been told to go away and and lose weight. And it's like handing a Sisyphean task to people. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I just want the film to be a stepping stone on a way to changing um, the way that we see fatness, really.
0: Great. Well, it's certainly... To bring us back to where we started at, really, it's certainly... The experience of watching it, which is very similar to Seahorse, I think, is, is, is it puts you in your own body, you know, in a way that is really profound, you know. And it's such a deep and personal engagement with Aubrey, but also with yourself as an audience member. I think that's a beautiful achievement um, in the ways it makes you question and think about yourself as a, as an embodied person. Um, yeah, I think it's really, it's a really beautiful film um well done again
2: uh thanks neil that's so lovely to hear thank you uh
0: just wanted to end on a note to say uh how sorry i was to hear about the passing of tom uh from sound it out um which was news which i because i'm not on social media anymore which came to me via the poignantly within the editing of, of the book uh which i write about the film so i just wanted to to say yeah that um yeah sorry about Sorry, what, what happened to Tom? And yeah, I, I saw your tribute online and thought it was a really, really lovely tribute to him.
2: Yeah, he was... Um, um, Tom from Sound It Out was the rare occasion when I made a film about someone I, I already knew. I went to school with Tom. So I'd known him since we were both 14. And um, it, it still it still hasn't really sunk in. If I... If I don't think about it too much, I can still imagine him behind the counter at Sound It Out Records giving out sort of uh, wisdom and (laughs) well-worn sympathy for the people that went in the shop. Um, It just feels... It feels too tragic to think about a world where Sound It Out Records isn't still running and and Tom isn't there. Yeah. Um, You know, it's no it's no consolation cuz i want my friend back but i'm really glad that people outside of stockton got to know tom through the shop and i know that um the film being in the film brought him great joy and it continues to do for his family so it's a ti- it's a tiny tiny consolation consolation really
0: yeah well that f- that film is still bringing joy as our as are all your films, so thank you for thank you for sticking with it, and uh, <laughs> uh, see you. In- yeah, I'm
2: still here. I'm still here. I'm making film number ten at the moment. So
0: cool. Well, I'll see you when you come up again for air in a couple of years to chat about that one.
2: Fantastic. Thanks so much for chatting today. It's always always a pleasure to see you.
0: Yeah, you too. Thank you.